Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. They were saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and he eats with them. To that statement from the hand of blessed Luke, the evangelist, I want to say, so? I do it all the time. As a matter of fact, I had lunch with Russ Knapp yesterday. <laughs> it's no big deal. We're all guilty of missing the mark. Who's not a sinner? Now, my cavalier snub of a remark would indicate my lack of understanding when it comes to first century practice of God-fearing religion. Were I a practitioner of of the churchy elite back in those days, Jesus' days, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a scribe, I might well have said, no, this is big deal, really big deal. This is absolutely disgusting, morally reprehensible behavior on the part of a rabbi who is supposed to know the law, preach the law, teach the law, and live it. I can imagine the pompous ones wagging their heads and smacking their lips and preaching that old hackneyed incantation of a sermon that went something like, now you have heard it said, be holy as God is holy, as if you could be. And you know that purity is the be-all, end-all when it comes to keeping company with God. Be ye advised and cautioned and warned to keep yourselves undefiled, unspotted from the world. Avoid all tax collectors, sinners, outcasts, prostitutes, money changers, lepers, units, the foreigners, the poor, the marginal, even kindly Samaritans or else. No decent person hangs with riffraff. You and I have little appreciation of how downright scandalous it was to witness a holy man cavorting with the less than, the down and out, the defective who threatened to be infective, and those who live outside the edges of respectability with no chance whatsoever of ever getting in. How jarring it must have been to see Jesus violate the strict laws of separation. You see what he's doing here? He's attacking what's called a purity system, and he's doing it by word and action, and his actions speak so much loud, more loudly than his words. He's preaching a new sermon, a new song, one that goes, not, be ye holy as God is holy. This one is, be compassionate as God is compassionate. Oh, if Jesus only had had an Episcopal hymnal at the time, I know he'd be singing, there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice that transfigures you and me. 
Oh, I love that hymn so much. I know it by memory, and I often sing it for some reason at the stoplight. <laughs> there is welcome for the sinner and more gracious for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. In the summer of 2014, a very dear Indian friend asked me to be a groomsman in his wedding. I say wedding. That's an understatement. It was a five-day marriage festival of enormous biblical proportions. Hundreds of people, nothing but the best, fine food, strong drink, hip-shaking music, sensuous dancing, a big brass band, a groom on a white stallion, and a bride adorned with what looked like the gold of Ophir. Hindu marriage custom had me adorned as well. A magnificent magenta silk turban atop my head with a tassel that extended all the way to the floor. A pair of narrow-gauge shoes with toe structures that featured twirls at the top that almost crippled me. <laughs> a white alb-like outer garment with the most ornate gold piping you've ever seen in all your life. My ego jumped for joy to be resembling, for at least a moment, a Rajasthani potentate. I was even given a new name. You know, I moved here from North Carolina. I spent a little bit of time there after New York. Well, they gave me a new name, one that I should have added to my resume. They called me Monk, M-O-N-C, Maharaja of North Carolina. <laughs> The very last festivity of the week was a sit-down dinner for 400 people. It was carried out under the canopy of a big circus tent. Mutton, chicken, rabbit, okra, bindi, paneer, rabodi, alu, and ladu adorned the menu. Along with at least a year's supply of scotch, vodka, gin, and rye, on my table alone, it was a table for eight. I didn't drink any, but there it was. And because I had won the prize for the guest coming to the banquet from the longest distance, you know that's how Rotary works, <laughs> 10,000 miles in fact, I was the first to be seated and served at one of the high tables. Isolated and alone and not wanting to eat by myself, I spotted several young men of early teenage vintage these guys were about to take food on the floor, and they were sitting along the wall of the great circus tent. I jumped at the opportunity to be inclusive, not so much out of altruism, more to relieve my awkward aloneness, to get a conversation going, to do something. So I ran over there, and I said, guys, guys, come and sit with me. I've got a table with seven other chairs up there. Sir, we cannot do that, said a spokesman to the group. Oh, please come. I'm all by myself. I'd love to have your company and find out what you're doing, where you're going, what you're like. Come and sit with me. Sir, we cannot do that. At which time a scowling, and I mean glowering, wedding consultant informed me that members of such caste we're not allowed to eat with people of privilege. 
My face reddened at both my embarrassment for breaking protocol and also anger at systems of purity and exclusion that create outcasts, caste, outcast, the juxtaposition of those two words. I point no fingers at ancient Rajasthani tradition. God forbid that I would. Jesus reminds me in clear and certain terms to take the log out of my own eye before I ever try to remove the speck in the eye of another. But you know, dear God, we do have our own caste systems. I have mine. I suspect you have yours. We build walls. We separate. We divide one from the other. Even though we would vehemently disavow such things in our alleged egalitarian way of doing business. As I was leaving the wedding party that afternoon and walking through a parking lot to hail a ride back to my hotel, a young man rushed me. It was one of the teens from the wall. He fell down in front of me. He tightly embraced my knees. He looked up and he said to me, Sir, I love you. Will you always remember me? Will you always remember me? I could hardly speak at both his gesture and his question and the feelings that must have prompted that kind of statement. Well, you better believe I remember him something sometimes more often than not. I think he may have been Jesus reminding me that the dividing wall of hostility has been abolished through the work of the cross. That's a done deal. That we are all children of God and inheritors of life wherever we find ourselves on the journey, and that there can be no place in the kingdom for wagging heads and smacking lips, lips that smoot and sneer with snide references to the riffraff, the dregs of society, the good-for-nothings, the outcasts. It's not about me keeping myself unspotted from the world. It's about me getting my hands dirty for the sake of Jesus. It's not about me being holy as God is holy. I cannot do that. It's about me being compassionate as God is compassionate. I say we invade the mission budget of this congregation, that we invite those wall boys over here, that we feed them breakfast at the high table in Morrison Hall, and give you and me an unparalleled and exciting opportunity to find our own reward by doing the dishes and by taking out the garbage. One of my sisters often uses the internet to forward theological tidbits to me. Now she's looking out for my spiritual welfare. She wants to save me. And she's always saying something like, now you may be able to use this one in one of your sermons. And I delete it, usually. <laughs> Several months ago, she sent me the following bomo. And indeed, I think I'll use it in one of my sermons, this one. Now you have to know a little bit about Scripture in order to get it. I hope you'll get it. Here it is. The Bible is clear. Moabites are bad. They were not allowed to dwell among God's people. But then, then comes the story of Ruth the Moabite, 
which challenges all prejudice against Moabites. The Bible is clear. People from us are evil. But then, here comes the story of Job, a man from us, one who was said to be the most blameless man on the face of the earth. The Bible is clear. No foreigners are eunuchs allowed. But then, then comes the story of an African eunuch who was baptized and welcomed joyously into the church family. The Bible is clear. God's people hated Samaritans. But then, Jesus tells a story that shows not all Samaritans are bad. In fact, some can be very good. The Bible is clear. Outcasts and sinners are way, way off limits. But then Jesus welcomes them at his table. And oh, what does he do? He eats with them. The story may begin with prejudice, discrimination, and animosity. But the Spirit of God dwelling way down deep in the human heart is always moving God's people towards openness, welcome, inclusion, acceptance, and affirmation. That being true, that indwelling of the Spirit within us, just imagine the walls you and I can take down, the casts we can dissolve, the lads we can entertain for breakfast, and the dinner parties we can throw. As I said, one of my favorite hymns is There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. We sang it to a new beautiful tune today, one that I love so much, often with flute accompaniment. There's another tune. I'm going to pull a Bishop Curry here. Let's sing the first verse. You know it by memory. Sing it with me. There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner, and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.